Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Wish we didn't have to meet Secretly Wish we didn't have to kiss Nineteen twenties Berlin was a city littered with gay and lesbian magazines. It was a city that gay novelist Christopher Isherwood would soon romanticize in his novels. Nineteen twenty Berlin was full of gay bars. 
There was one decorated with photos of cyclists and boxers and heated by a big, old-fashioned iron stove. The room heated up and the boys took off their leather jackets and their sweaters. They unbuttoned their shirts and rolled up their sleeves. This is technically illegal, according to paragraph 175 in the German Imperial Penal Code. But before the rise of the Third Reich, 175 is very loosely enforced. It outlaws lewd and unnatural conduct between men, but bars aren't raided very often, and few homosexuals are ever punished, though it does happen. This law is challenged by Magnus Hirschfeld and Adolf Brand, among others, but we'll put a pin in that story for another time. The point is, before Hitler's reign, Germany was pretty queer. Even someone who has seen Cabaret or read their share of Isherwood might not have thought about this. A country oblivious to, or even widely welcoming to, queer identity that has turned to hunt down and stigmatize the queer community. Anyway, I came to learn about this German bar with the iron stove when I read about a man who frequented the bar during his time in Berlin in 1920. The feeling of this bar would not leave his mind when he returned to America, and he had an idea. And his idea spread across the country in whispers. And that secret was written down on six pages and hidden in a desk drawer. It was strategized on a hillside in the bushes. By then, it was 1950 as it grew into a secret organization. Soon it would be a threat to the American government. Then we would be a threat to the American family. When I began researching these activists, I only had a vague idea of the secret society of gay people who have often gone without credit for their hand in the early gay liberation movement. Though before their identities were exposed, many of them wanted to remain anonymous. Welcome to Mattachine. Well, I understand that we're being picketed by a group uh, of homosexuals. <laughs> it may appear normal. And it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. Exiled and criminal. Subject to blackmail. We are still illegal. We're being thrown out of the State Department. Policy of the department is that we do not employ homosexuals, and that if we discover homosexuals in our department, we discharge them. The sickness of the mind. His parents don't know it. His neighbors don't know it. His fellow workers don't know it. And people had to come together in order to, to cooperate, in order to survive. In the matter scene, we are seeking acceptance of the homosexual in society. Create a facade, and then behind the facade we could organize networks of sanctuaries or places where we could come and out of which we would be able to move and organize and change things across the country. Our homosexuals themselves satisfied with the way they are. Everybody said that gays would not fight back. Mattachine is a podcast dedicated to exploring the overlooked, forgotten, or often untold stories in gay history. I'm Devlin Camp. A few years ago, my mentor Albert Williams and I were discussing gay history, as we often do. He teaches me quite a bit about gay history in that necessary way that young queer people like myself learn our history from older queer mentors, through stories that he lived and books he recommends. We used to sit in his office as he'd toss out book titles I should look up, such as The Persian Boy and Dancing in the Gay Lib Blues. Albert, he goes by Bill, Bill told me about pre-Stonewall gay history, something I didn't know much about, as it's an often overlooked portion of our past. The night at Stonewall in 1969, in which trans and gay people fought back against police raiding their bar, has been spoken of with such passion and detail that the imagery entices us more so than other stories in our history. Stories like the people who tried to remain anonymous in their effort to begin the gay rights movement decades before Stonewall. Bill told me about 
the Mattachine Society, which met in speakeasy fashion in their living rooms with curtains drawn and discreet meeting strategies, planning political moves and methods of bringing together an organized gay community, which didn't exist yet. The community that fought back at Stonewall in 69 was non-existent in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, at least to quote-unquote normal society. Most heterosexual people didn't know homosexual and transgender people were right there, among them, every day. But the queer people of the early 20th century noticed each other, the same way we see each other now. Across the room, you make eye contact. Walking down the street, you notice his gait, and you see each other. In one of the books Bill recommended to me, The City and the Pillar, Gore Vidal wrote in 1948, Occasionally, two homosexuals might meet in the great world. When they did, by a quick glance, they acknowledged one another, and, like amused conspirators, observed the effect each was having. It was a form of Freemasonry. Some folks talk about gaydar now, but that instinctual skill wasn't discussed then. It was something only homosexuals really knew existed in public society, and so they already were a secret society. I began researching this society out of curiosity, assuming the group to be a trivial fun fact in gay history. But the story of the Mattachine Society grew into something so great and sprawling, it became difficult for me to interpret my anger at our greater society for not educating students about this extensive event in gay history. In American history, our history helped shape the country, its politics, and then our families. And as I began to reevaluate how I view our queer community's influence on our country's history, I would come to reevaluate my own relationships and ideals in regard to the modern queer community. I knew about Stonewall and Harvey Milk, Oscar Wilde and every John Waters movie, The Gay Liberation Front, Angels in America, but some names get redacted and some files are kept sealed for far too long. Our history began centuries ago, though our American liberation began in the 20th century. That secret society, the Mattachine, was created by a factory worker named Harry Hay in 1948. But the structure of this organization was based on anonymity for the protection of their members. Anonymity is a crucial piece to this story, so today I'll tell you why Harry Hay put pen on paper to create his society, but signed his name, Ian McDonald. And why anonymity? How does that work? Could a viable movement be started by pseudonyms? Did they have enough pride in being part of the community they were fighting for to put their own names on the line? Why take any social action at all if not committing your name to it? Well, Harry Hay was inspired because when two homosexuals met in the great world in 1929, like amused conspirators, one man whispered to Harry Hay a secret about an attempt to begin a society for homosexuals and just how badly things went. This week, We'll uncover that secret. We'll trace the roots of American gay liberation and the Mattachine Society back to Henry Gerber, a postal worker in 1920s Chicago. Henry Gerber will compare what he did to notorious bandits joining a thieves' union. There are no organizations, no bars designated for the queer, or role models such as RuPaul or Ellen DeGeneres or whomever you might look up to. Millions of homosexuals are living against the law, and no one wants their name printed on a list for an organization of people living against the law. Henry gets his idea after going out and discovering queer culture on his own and decides to bring it back with him to America. 
Henry had moved to the U.S. from Bavaria in 1913. He had no idea he was a homosexual. Hitchhiking through Kansas, he met a young farmer boy, and the boy offered Henry a ride and a job stacking wheat. When Henry arrived on the farm, he met the boy's friend, and all three of them slept together in the bunkhouse. Henry would later write, The boys did not hesitate to invite me into their beds. It's an awakening experience for the young immigrant. A few years later, Henry is briefly institutionalized for his homosexuality, though records are unclear how this happened or for how long. He serves in the Army of Occupation in Germany after the First World War and visits Berlin often. It's there, in Berlin, that he frequents the gay bar with the old-fashioned iron stove and reads gay magazines. He's a printer and a proofreader, and a publication called Bun for Menschenrecht Recht hires him to write in his free time. Their name translates to Society for Human Rights. He writes a few articles for them, the translated titles of a couple being English Hypocrisy and $2 or 15 years in prison. But eventually, he must return to the United States, and he's once again restricted to the closet. What could be done about it, I thought, Henry would later write. Unlike Germany, where the homosexual was partially organized and where sex legislation was uniform for the whole country, the United States was in a condition of chaos and misunderstanding concerning its sex laws, and no one was trying to unravel the tangled and bring relief to the abused. In the early 1920s, he moves to Chicago and takes a job at the post office. Henry finds a thriving gay subculture. It's hidden in the bohemian area of the near north side, nicknamed Tower Town, around the old Chicago Water Tower, which still stands on Michigan Avenue today. That's where Henry meets Frank Spurk and Al Meininger, and the trio becomes good friends. He finds a glimpse of liberation again in this subculture around Tower Town, like in Berlin. The beginning of all movements is necessarily small, he'll one day write. Henry hears a call for action to bring Bund for Menschenrecht to the United States. His boss at the post office helps him write up a declaration of purpose for Chicago's own Society for Human Rights. The hardest part is finding the right people to support him. The average homosexual, I found, was ignorant concerning himself, Henry will later write in 1962. Others were fearful. Still, others were frantic or depraved. Some were blasé. Many homosexuals told me that their search for forbidden fruit was the real spice of life. With this argument, they rejected our aims. We wondered how we could accomplish anything with such resistance from our own people. But this doesn't slow him down. He has Al, his gay friend in Tower Town, and Reverend John T. Graves, a man of color and preacher who supports Henry's ideas. The plan is to get members to join the society, start a series of lectures to educate homosexuals in the public, and then start a publication to keep the community in touch with progress. Then, hopefully, they can win legal aid and legislators to eventually become open homosexuals in society. Henry writes the entire first publication named Friendship and Freedom after the German publication. He pays for the printing himself and mails it out to their small number of members. It's completely clean and free of obscenity, but many people don't want to receive it in their mail. Some of them fear their wives might see it. Though Henry and Al want exclusively homosexuals to join anyway, not bisexuals, or in many cases, homosexual men married to women hiding a secret from her and their children. Henry doesn't want secrets. He wants to create discussion, make some noise, educate the authorities that closet the community of Tower Town and Greater Chicago. They don't want closeted married men tarnishing the society's reputation. On December 10th, 1924, Henry spends $10 to file an application to issue a nonprofit corporation charter in Illinois. 
the society forms to promote the interests of people who by reasons of mental and physical abnormalities are abused and hindered by the legal pursuit of happiness which is guaranteed them by the Declaration of Independence. The Reverend John Graves signs his true name as president, Al signs as vice president, and Henry Gerber signs as secretary. The charter is issued on Christmas Eve, 1924. Yes, they sign their real names. And no one seems to investigate the group's purpose. Henry intentionally doesn't write about sexuality on the application. The word homosexual isn't even widely used yet. But still, this is the earliest documented homosexual emancipation organization in the United States. And with no one noticing, they get to work. Printing friendship and freedom, seeking new members, contacting doctors. But every medical professional refuses to wager their reputation on endorsing the society or the publication. Only poor homosexuals want to join because they have nothing to lose. And Henry will pay for it all. It's an uphill fight. And at the end of long days of work and looking for members, the three of them each go their separate ways. Henry to his apartment, John to his house, and Al to his wife and children. One Sunday morning at about 2 a.m., Henry Gerber returns home from a trip downtown. He goes to his room and hears a knock at the door. Must be the landlady. He opens the front door and two men shove their way in. One says he's a detective for the city, the other a newspaper reporter, from the Hearst paper, The Examiner. The detective looks around and asks Henry, where's the boy? Henry asks, what boy? He has orders from his captain, the detective explains, to bring Henry down to the station. The cop grabs Henry's typewriter, his notary public diploma, bookkeeping accounts, the literature for Henry's Society for Human Rights, and his personal diaries. There is no warrant for his arrest, no charges made against Henry, but they came in the night and took him away. The police, I suppose, had hoped or expected to find us in bed. They could not imagine homosexuals in any other way. Henry will come to find out that during step one of creating this organization, the search for members, Al's wife had discovered his secret. Henry and John didn't know their society's vice president had a wife or two children. Like I mentioned before, they don't want gay men married to women to join their group, or bisexuals, which is frustrating. When Al's wife discovers the publications and the Society for Human Rights, she phones a social worker about Al's organization of quote-unquote degenerates. The social worker contacts the police to report these quote-unquote strange doings, and the police contact a reporter. When morning comes, Henry is allowed to call his boss at the post office, who kindly declares him absent on leave, so he won't be in trouble for the arrest. The police take him down to the Chicago Avenue police court in a car full of strangers. When he walks in, he finds Al Meininger and John Graves and a young man found in Al's room during the arrest. None of them know exactly what's going to happen. They wait. Henry chats with a friendly cop who shows him the morning paper. Henry takes the examiner in his hands and reads the headline. Strange sex cult exposed. He reads through the article, which details how Al Meininger brought his male friends home and had, in full view of his wife and children, practiced strange sex acts with them. The reporter explains the pamphlet he found for this cult, which urged men to leave their wives and children. It goes on to tell the story as if the preacher and the postal worker were arrested along with Al in his bedroom last night. Henry feels betrayed, later referring to Al as an indignant laundry queen. 
which I think is a brilliant read. Monday, the day after the arrest, Henry goes to court. The detective presents a powder puff as evidence, claiming to have found it in Henry's room. The social worker reads from Henry's diary a single line out of context, I love Carl. The judge shudders. This is their case against Henry Gerber. The state attorney turns to Henry and asks, Does Society for Human Rights stand for the right of you swine to fuck boys in the ass? To the already prejudiced court, we were obviously guilty, Henry writes. We were guilty just by being homosexual. The judge barely speaks to them, closing with a comment that they had violated federal law for sending their obscene newsletter through the mail, and they are dismissed to Cook County Jail. John is separated from Henry and Al in jail while they wait for a second trial set for that Thursday. Al breaks down crying in his cell, feeling guilty for getting them into this. A prisoner who takes notice connects Henry with a shyster lawyer that takes on criminal cases. The case looks serious, according to that lawyer, but he says he can get them out on bail for $200. Henry can just pay the maximum fine of $200 and go free, back home and back to work at the post office, but he takes up the lawyer's offer instead. Thursday. Henry walks into court to see two post office inspectors. They're prepared to have the federal commissioner take the case from the obscenity angle for sending friendship and freedom through the United States Postal Service. Friendship and freedom doesn't depict any sex acts, it's just pro-homosexuality. The attorney argues that they should be released and that a powder puff is not evidence. The judge gets angry and threatens the attorney with contempt, ultimately adjourning the trial until Monday. Henry's attorney makes one more request for bail, and the judge thinks about it and sets bail for $1,000 each. So the lawyer agrees to that and also collects his fees. Henry is broke but free. The next day, he returns to work at the post office to find that he's been suspended by the postal inspectors. He calls the examiner, the newspaper that reported his arrest, and they assure him that corrections will be made, but of course, nothing happens. He looks into a new lawyer that will help him get his job back, a lawyer that will again cost him $200. The lawyer arranges for Henry's case to be put on the docket of another judge, who is rumored to be queer. There is a third trial. There's the new judge, the arresting detective, prosecuting attorney, the two postal inspectors, and even the first lawyer is there to watch after developing an interest in Henry's case. The new judge is upset by the arrests made without a warrant, calling it an outrage. He dismisses the case. Al pleads guilty to disorderly conduct and is fined $10. The judge orders Henry's things to be returned, but he only gets his typewriter back. The postal inspectors never return his diaries. Henry spent more than his life savings on the case. His lawyer says he can get him his job back, but Henry is out of money to pursue it. Shortly after, he receives a letter in the mail from Washington telling him he's been dismissed for conduct unbecoming a postal worker. Henry will later write, that definitely meant the end of the Society for Human Rights. He becomes bitter that no affluent homosexual came to help him. He'll write, most bitches are only interested in sex contacts. He wants to free homosexuals for their own good and for his, and he'll one day write that he wants to become the Moses of our community. But by signing his name on the application to take on this role, he had welcomed his society's own undoing. When they read his name, they took everything from him. Henry packs up and moves to New York City. 
New York City, 1925, is full of speakeasies, subway tea rooms, nightclubs, and Turkish baths. There are masquerade balls of homosexuals and a lesbian tea room run by Eve Adams, known as the Queen of the Third Sex. She has a sign on the door stating, "Men are admitted, but not welcome." Henry lives in Greenwich Village on East 11th Street. Meanwhile, across the country in Los Angeles, word of Henry's failed organization spreads, planting the seeds of a movement. More in a moment. I mentioned during this episode that schools don't teach us gay history. If you learned anything about gay history in your school, you're one of the lucky few. This is changing because of programs like History Unerased. Check out unerased.org. Not only is bullying still an issue, but nearly half of homeless youth are queer. One in five queer kids of color attempt suicide. Young queer kids are even more likely to drop out of school. This is why I'm talking about History Unerased. Not because this is a paid ad. It's not. This program is doing important work, and they're bringing educators in K through 12 classrooms, proper training, and resources to include LGBTQ history and queer inquiry in social science classes, fine arts, and health courses, among others. And language is always expanding for the queer community with new terms and complexities that educators want to understand and apply in their classrooms. For instance, how do I use the word trans properly? What does non-binary mean? Teachers want to help students feel safe and understood by using the proper terminology, so the people in history are erased are helping with that too. If all kids in school learn about our history, then we can get rid of misperceptions about queer people and fix the real problems that those misperceptions create. Like queer kids quitting school because they don't feel safe, homelessness, suicide. If you're an educator that wants to help your classroom be a safer space for your LGBTQ students, check out unerased.org for more information. It saves students' lives, improves the safety for kids at school, and it's fascinating history. In the early 1930s, you might thumb through the Saturday Review of Literature, as many people do. You might see an ad for a service called Contacts. Contacts proclaims itself the only correspondence club for the mentally marooned, and it lists descriptions of people seeking pen pals, heterosexual or otherwise. It doesn't specify who should write in; anyone can. And a young man named Manuel Boyfrank does, as this is a modern way of connecting with people. The letters go in, and someone assigns a number to each contactor and matches people up with other people they think they would connect with. Manuel's letter goes to the creator of the service, who is listed as Merlin Wand. Of course, that's a pseudonym. Manuel's letter arrives in the mailbox of Henry Gerber. Henry understands Manuel's loneliness, and they both know what this service is really for: lonely queer people looking to connect. And perhaps sometimes it's a cruising tactic. And Henry. Anonymously running contacts doesn't connect Manuel with another number because he feels like making contact with Manuel himself. So he writes him back. Henry is connecting other lonely queer people, though, even if their letters don't explicitly state their sexuality. They can read between the lines to understand what is truly being said, what the service is really for. It's tactics like these that teach homosexuals a secret language of subtext. For example, let me read some of what Henry Gerber's profile says. Contactor number ten, NYC, male, 44, proofreader, single, 
favored by nature with immunity to female charms, but does not hate women, considers them necessary in the scheme of nature. Amused by screwy antics of homo sapiens, introvert, enjoying a quiet evening with classical music or non-fiction book. Looking at life, I understand why monkeys protested Darwin's theory. A couple paragraphs down while discussing his opinions on sexual morality, he says, birth control makes slow headway, but is considered legal. Although natural forms of birth control, which do not depend on artificial goods sold in drugstores, are still considered grave moral misdemeanors. Any reader just scanning through this bio might not detect that natural forms of birth control means homosexual sex. He goes on to write the usual interests you might find in a personal about me page, but put quite simply, he's looking for someone intelligent who forms opinions about the world on their own without being led by religion or society. And perhaps he's finding that in Manuel Boyfrank. Henry and Manuel have no way of knowing for sure what sort of fellow they might be contacting. Number 10 could be anyone on the receiving end, essentially catfishing number 1344. But Manuel trusts the letters. Henry dedicates his time to the dating service until it flourishes to nearly 1,500 members. This is a way of doing the Society for Human Rights over again, safely, anonymously, and getting something real for himself. Contact. Approximately 200 letters are exchanged between these two men. They discuss Henry's Society for Human Rights, many books Henry is writing, pseudonyms, and groundwork for organizing homosexuals. Manuel tells Henry stories of growing up part Cherokee in turn-of-the-century Oklahoma Territory, where he became a cowboy the same year Henry was moving to America. He writes to Henry about how, with little opportunity for sexual adventure that existed in cities like Chicago, some cowboys paired off and became close. Manuel recalls that this didn't have to be seen between the two men as a homosexual issue or something to feel guilty about. And it's later out on these same farmlands and prairies that Alfred Kinsey will record the highest occurrences of homosexual behavior compared to the rest of the country. But let's put a pin on that until next week. Henry connects Manuel to another contactor. Number 1744, Frank McCourt, a 36-year-old man, and the three of them develop a conversation. Frank has been collecting a huge sexology library of books and photographs in his home, some bought through German magazine mail orders and similar channels. He teaches Manuel about homosexual literature, Whitman, Wilde, Greek ethics, and so on. The trio continues to talk about the future of the homosexual, how to organize safely, with Henry already well experienced in just how quickly an organization can go south. There is a lot of start and stop on several ideas, not just with these three men. Presumably all over the world, questionnaires and letters and pamphlets and photos and sex groups, all sorts of correspondence is written in the same way Henry and his friends are trying to bring about gay liberation. There are many disconnected homosexuals seeking the same type of organization that will never know of each other and will never be recorded. Letter chains, clubs, disguised as science fiction clubs, chess clubs, or book clubs, all unaware of each other, just a reason to gather and talk and it's likely that evidence of their existence is intentionally destroyed by them to hide their secret. With many men being shipped off, Frank McCourt presumes that a growing viable movement will have to be a post-war effort. Nine years of Henry Gerber's dating service called Contacts goes by. He becomes tired of being used as a hookup service. He's still in the army and knows it's risky to continue, so in 1939, 
he ends contacts. During its run, the discussion these three men had foreshadowed the discussions that will be held by the Mattachine, discussions held behind closed curtains and locked doors in the living rooms of people using pseudonyms with a group of gay strangers. Manuel writes to Henry about the need for propaganda to make their case. They discuss seeking the support of medical authorities to fight the agreed diagnosis of homosexuality as a psychological disorder. They talk about contacting the press with educational literature, all things that will come in time. Henry pitches the idea of a club created by gay men by listing their past lovers, using real sex to grassroot the movement. Frank offers up his photo collection to share within the group. Manuel perseveres with ideas for organization, but Henry ultimately still feels uncomfortable forming what he calls a society of queers. So Frank pulls back and spends time on his collection and hosting weekend orgies in his home. On August 5th, 1944, Henry writes to Manuel and Frank, I want to work from the top down and you want to work from the bottom up. I can never agree to that. In other words, you want to enlighten the people as to sex while I want to enlighten the authorities that persecution of homosexuals is antisocial and unjust and hypocritical as long as the perversions of heterosexuals are not punished. The only difference is that my plan can bring some results while your plan can only put you in jail. The three men write for years never quite settling on an agreement, another harbinger of the movement to come. Outside of the letters, Henry continues to work for the cause. He writes to periodicals such as The Modern Thinker, defending homosexuality against doctors and psychoanalysts. In one instance of this, his reply to an essay, which is published by the periodical, he argues back that if homosexuals are disturbed by insecurity, antisocial behavior, or criminal tendencies, then the homosexual has been made so by societal oppression. After all, Henry writes, refuting that essay, it is highly futile for Dr. Wolf to worry about neurotic homosexuals when the world itself, led and ruled by strong heterosexual, quote-unquote, normal men, is in such chaotic condition and knows not where to turn. He also serves as circulation manager for a magazine called Chanticleer, writing under the pseudonym Parasex. Henry writes about homosexual literature and his eloquently argued position against monogamy as a construct created by priests and politicians. And he writes about Hitler's murder of homosexuals, such as Ernst Rahm and other essay officers. He also does book reviews, and he's got a knack for wisecracking reviews of what he calls anti-homosexual propaganda. Actually, <laughs> here are a couple clips from those book reviews. Twilight Men by André Tellier deals with a young Frenchman who comes to America, introduced into homosexual society in New York, becomes a drug addict for no obvious reason, finally kills his father and commits suicide. It is again excellent anti-homosexual propaganda, although the plot is too silly to convince anyone who has known homosexual people at all. Strange Brother by Blair Niles is the story of a sensitive young man. The author causes him to go through as many mental sufferings as she can, then puts a pistol in his hand and lets him shoot himself and end the book. Again, an ideal anti-homosexual propaganda, but no more logical than the book mentioned before. So shade really does come from reading. Henry Manuel and Frank's correspondence begins to fizzle out because of differing opinions. Frank wants a sort of sex-obsessed hedonic church, 
Henry wants to organize a secret underground legal assistance group, and Manuel wants to revive contacts. They disagree on everything down to the name of their group, which Manuel pushes to be something like Dorian Society. Doric or Dorian being a Greek word sometimes used in the gay community to mean gay. Manuel knows the group's name has to be a word that takes on meaning, not just an acronym or official group title. The word has to represent the movement. Across the country, in Los Angeles, a young man named Harry Hay crosses a downtown street into Pershing Square, a park of overgrown trees and a common place for homosexual men to cruise for anonymous sex. There are a few other options for men to meet each other. Harry locks eyes with a man he later learns is named Champ Simmons. Champ is a little older, and the two begin meeting indoors. He's surprised to learn Harry is only 17 and, as Harry will later put it, jailbait. For two reasons. Champ teaches Harry a great deal about being a homosexual. He tells Harry that he had been brought out by a man involved in a secret society in Chicago called the Society for Human Rights. Harry will later recall, Champ passed it on to me as if it were too dangerous. The failure of the Chicago group should be a direct warning to anybody trying to do anything like that again. But Harry hears the warning as inspiration. Frank McCourt goes on to create the U.S. Rocket Society, a science fiction club where homosexuals can discreetly gather. The letters between Henry and Manuel are considered by historian Jonathan Katz as no doubt one of the most valuable collections of original gay American history manuscripts that will ever be found. Those letters will be preserved by a man who will soon watch the Mattachine closely as he gathers pamphlets, clippings, and correspondence all over Los Angeles. But we'll talk more about Jim Kepner in the weeks to come. These stories of what happened to Henry Gerber after his arrest don't just explain how difficult it is for a gay person to make contact with another gay person before organizations and explicitly gay bars are established. Though I did read the book reviews only because I think they're hilarious. But these stories say so much more about Henry, because with all the drive he had to continue helping his community, he never did anything as bold as the Society for Human Rights ever again. How are the people of Henry's service called contacts connecting and meeting? Anonymously. Everyday people longing for contact with someone like them. But needing to remain a citizen in good standing with jobs and homes and parents and friends. By putting his name on the line, losing all of his money, his job, and even needing to move to a new city to start fresh, Henry was understandably changed. If you read about Henry, many historians refer to him in this time after his arrest as grumpy and crotchety. Earlier, I asked, why anonymity? Anonymity will become the key piece to putting together action and keeping your job, your savings, family, home. Anonymity makes it possible to take action and keep your life when trying to live your life is the whole point of taking action. Many other stories follow the legacy of Henry Gerber. He was once mugged in New York City, and Henry tracked down his mugger and pressed charges. His lawyer had the trial postponed five times, thinking Henry wouldn't show up. But the jury convicted for assault in the third degree. And then Henry wrote to Manuel, I wanted to prove to myself that it does not pay to rob a dork because he is such. They take it for granted that we are too cowardly to fight for our rights. Homosexuals of the time are not only beaten, robbed, and blackmailed, but they're still harassed by postal monitors who report them to the police. In February 1942, Henry's living space is searched by the U.S. Army's investigative unit. They find no evidence, not even a powder puff, 
and he's still forced to spend weeks in the guardhouse until he's put before a Section 8 board in their attempt to kick him out of the army. And he'll later write, When I told the president of the board I only practiced mutual masturbation with men over 21, the psychiatrist told me, You are not a homosexual. I nearly fell out of my chair. Imagine me fighting all my life for our cause and then be told I was not a homosexual. He spends the rest of his time at the U.S. Soldiers' Home in Washington, D.C., writing his never-published book, Moral Delusions. Manuel continues to attempt to organize a homosexual in North Hollywood. In another letter, Frank writes to Henry about Manuel, saying, He has so many grand ideas, and somehow nothing comes of them. Frank manages the Rocketeer's sci-fi club as his health declines. The letters and photographs slow. Henry no longer wants Frank's photos because he gets, quote, no more joy at looking at pictures than does a squirrel from looking on an advertisement of planter's nuts. Frank, of course, will later experience some trouble with postal inspectors, too. It wasn't long after Henry left Germany that the National Socialist Party became bent on exterminating homosexuals there. Gays were just one small part of their agenda, of course. Hitler was appointed chancellor, and the Reichstag German parliament building was burned, allegedly by a communist. Citing the arson at the Reichstag as proof that communists were scheming against the German government, Hitler used the fire to urge the president to have his communist political opponents arrested. Their seats vacated, the Nazi party rose to power. The Nazi party enforced the arrests of homosexuals by cracking down on that relatively overlooked paragraph 175, a law already on the books. Dear Agony, the leading gay magazine, stopped publishing. Its editor had tried to challenge paragraph 175 with Magnus Hirschfeld, whose institute that inspired Henry Gerber while living in Germany was now raided and torn apart. Four days later, in Opera Square, Hirschfeld's books, case reports, charts, and files and photographs, all his research was burned publicly. A bust of Magnus Hirschfeld was carried by torchlight and tossed to the flames by Nazi supporters. The crowd cheered. The country and the culture that inspired Henry Gerber to take action in America was dismantled by the Nazi party after they rose to power by using a communist as a scapegoat. This is how the liberation of queer German people was stopped dead in its tracks. Henry Gerber and his organization in America were also stopped in their tracks. But because Henry heard the call to action, another leading activist will soon hear the call too. Magnus Hirschfeld had written years before, in 1927, All efforts aimed at creating a mass organization of homosexuals have, in the end, failed. Aside from a few minor cliques, homosexuals are in reality almost totally lacking in feelings of solidarity. In fact, it would be difficult to find another class of mankind which has proved so incapable of organizing to secure its basic legal and human rights. Henry grows cold to the movement. He's been hurt too many times and rarely finds anyone besides Manuel with whom he can agree. As a homosexual, he isn't even able to write in his own diary without having it used against him in court. I have few delusions left, he writes. I no longer believe in martyrdom for the sake of others. He writes to Manuel in 1944. Jesus is said to have died for mankind, but look at them now, 2,000 years later, worse than ever. Jesus could have had a good time with his 12 boyfriends in the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, the dopey bitch wanted to save others. Interestingly, 
the state in which Henry first tried to organize homosexuals, Illinois, will later become the first state to decriminalize sodomy, but that doesn't happen until 1962. When my mentor Bill told me about this law, I was kind of shocked to learn that it was actually illegal to have gay sex. As I previously mentioned, they didn't teach us gay history in school. In comparison to some of the stories that Bill told me, having human rights today feels like a privilege. To put in perspective how great it can be to live a gay life now, and to understand the problems that we still struggle with, it's important for queer people to have mentors like Bill. For instance, when I was in high school, before I knew Bill, after my friend and I saw Brokeback Mountain, her family found out and her grandpa confronted me while he and I were surrounded by the men of their family in his driveway. He was asking me why we would see such a movie. He said, cowboys didn't do that shit. I couldn't find the words to defend myself. When Bill told me about Henry Gerber, I read the stories that Manuel wrote to Henry about growing up in early 20th century Oklahoma territory, and I felt empowered by the education. Not only were Manuel's true cowboy stories 50 years older than the story in Brokeback, it was finally confirmation that cowboys did do that shit. So why don't we know more about these pieces of our history? What happened between Mattachine and the Stonewall riots in 1969, or between Stonewall and now? Historian John D'Amelio writes that our ignorance of this time in queer history is an example of queer oppression. It means that gay oppression stayed intact for decades. The silence and invisibility forced upon us spread back into our history. Queer history isn't even taught in school, except for schools in California that started it last year. These stories are not known because they've not been often told. That same historian stresses that queer people have been deprived of their gay ancestors. We have no sense of our roots as we're raised in heterosexual families, but Henry Gerber is our family, and knowledge of history is what strengthens us today. The day after Donald Trump was elected, I messaged Bill, distraught about what to do, how vulnerable our human rights suddenly felt, especially after I had been reading about what the Mattachine went through. Bill replied simply, The study of history is never wasted. It's preparation for the work ahead. This is a serialized story in gay history. For our ancestors before us and the queer descendants after us, I hope we can learn about our history together and carry on the fight. And although Henry Gerber took a step back from the gay liberation movement, this won't quite be the last we'll hear from him. Because, as I mentioned, Henry's story quietly spread across the country to Los Angeles, where a young man named Harry Hay hears about his history from a stranger in a park. And nearly 20 years after meeting that man in the park, in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Silver Lake, 38-year-old Harry Hay arrives home from his manufacturing job to his wife and two daughters. He opens the New York Times to find that the State Department is weeding out homosexuals from government work. He knows that soon factories contracted by the government, like the one he works for, will start to weed out homosexuals too. And with the story of Henry Gerber still clear in his mind, Harry Hay hears the call. Next week on Mattachine. Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode. Mattachine was created and hosted by me, Devlin Camp. Please share the show with your friends, whether they're gay, straight, asexual, or anywhere on the Kinsey scale. Special thanks to, of course, my dear friend and brilliant mentor, Albert Williams, for guiding me out into the great world of queer culture. This show is dedicated to you, Bill. 
Thanks to our editorial advisor, Paul DeCicio, for all your wonderful notes, ideas, and encouragement through the creation of this show. Also, huge thanks to Jennifer Venasco at WNYC for your fantastic tips. I've learned a lot from your suggestions, Jennifer. Thanks also to Evan Camp for your request for clarity when I run off on tangents. Harry Hayes' voice was provided by Steve Camp. Much more to come. This show wouldn't be happening without the abundant support of Tommy Bow and the guidance of Arturo Chavez. You can find the sources for the show on our website, mattachinepod.com, along with other fun tidbits I didn't have time to include today. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on the website, too. Also, please rate and review the show on iTunes, as it's a huge help to spread the word about the show. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mattachine Files. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo and audio clips of Harry Hay are courtesy of One Archives at the USC Libraries, which we'll talk about in episodes to come. Audio clips from The Rejected, the first American documentary on homosexuality, are licensed by 13 Productions and WNET. Also, if you're in the Chicago area, check out the Gerber Hart Library. It's the largest circulating LGBTQ library in the Midwest, named after Henry Gerber and attorney Pearl Hart. They've been around since 1981, collecting over 14,000 volumes, 800 periodical titles, and 100 archival collections in the city where Henry Gerber founded the first gay emancipation group in the U.S. That's what we just talked about. And Chicago is where Pearl Hart defended gay victims of entrapment and harassment, often for no fee at all, which led to Pearl Hart's nickname, the Guardian Angel of Chicago's Gay Community. The Gerber Hart Library is named in their honor. You can get more info about the library at gerberhart.org. Music for this episode were the songs Phantasm, On the Ground, Zombie Hoodoo, Crypto, Mining by Moonlight, Bumman on Tremelo, Soporific, Babylon, Mysterioso March, Comfortable Mystery, Disco Lounge, and The Complex, all by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The permissions, licenses, and equipment for this show certainly add up. If you'd like to contribute to the production of this show, you can check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash files and contribute as little as $1 per episode. Donors get private perks, like photos through the research process, PDF transcripts of episodes, and soon, bonus episodes. But if you're a school teacher, contact me on mattachinepod.com using your school email, and you will receive transcripts of every single episode free of charge. Feel free to teach your students all the queer history you can get your hands on. Thanks for listening. Here's what's coming up on Mattachine. I intend to be a homosexual, and I intend to find out exactly what this life is going to be like. Diagnose a homosexual simply by seeing him and talking with him. It's not a disease. The Société Matachin were a group of masked men. No one ever knew who they were. We don't know anything about their name. One never knows when the homosexual is about. A homosexual is found everywhere. Every small community, every rural district throughout the country. A large city, New York, San Francisco. In every occupation, in every city. They turned out in droves. There was a gay women's organization that had been formed just the year before. I could be called in and I... I didn't have no way of knowing what the FBI knew and didn't know. For the first time in my life, I was in a room together with about 15 other lesbians. I am hopelessly, utterly, totally hopelessly involved. The problem of homosexuality was not our problem, but society's problem. The homosexual is no different than anyone else. Do we deny the difference or do we recognize the difference? Gays are no different from straights. So we must begin to quit imitating the heteros. If we slip now, it could set everything back 20 or 30 years, you see. And I know that all kinds of changes are going to have to take place. I'm not quite sure how it's all going to go, but this is the most important thing that's ever happened to me, and I'm ready to throw all caution to the winds.